Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of being a Christian community, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit and for the Pentecost and for that day that the church exploded to be this movement that everyone here benefits from today. We pray that this same spirit would enliven our hearts and fill us and give us the capacity to serve the world in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, I'm going to start by sharing my screen and by reading the opening passage of Acts um, chapter 1, verses 12, and we're going to go through chapter 2, verse 12. Then they, that's the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, and together the crowd numbered about 120 people, and said, Friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language, Hakodalma, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead become desolate, and let there be no one to live in it, and let another take his position of overseer. So, one of the men who have accompanied us through the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles." Now, I'm going to stop there and do a little teaching on this, and I want you to mentally note what I say and to see where your questions and comments are. And so they are returning to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet. This is where the ascension took place, and Jesus has told them to go to Jerusalem. Now, this is a different detail than what we have recorded in Mark and Matthew's gospel, where all the resurrection appearances occur where Jesus had most of his ministry in Galilee. But in Luke's account, because remember Luke and Acts are part of a single piece, it's really important that the apostles return to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's going to be the missionary spot where the Big Bang happens, where the church scatters to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel. The Jerusalem is the city of David. It's where the Lord was crucified and rose from the dead and Part of Luke's intent in writing this is to help Rome and Christians see that this movement is not something new. It's not something different. It's not New Age, weird Roman religion, but rather the continuation 
of the story of the people of Israel. And Luke really, really wants to get that point across. And so he emphasizes the return to Jerusalem, um, where the ministry of the church begins. And so they go to that city, and in verse 13, they enter the room upstairs. And I think it's interesting that in the Gospel of John, you might recall that the institution of the Lord's Supper and the foot washing uh, all takes place in the upper room. Is this the same room? We don't know, but we assume it probably is, unless they had access to many upper rooms. I think it's kind of neat that this little detail is in the Acts of the Apostles. And after they're all in the room upstairs where they happen to be staying, Peter and John and the other nine, that's 11 apostles total, are all kind of hanging out. And verse 14 tells us what they're doing. They are devoting themselves to prayer and essentially waiting. Remember, the last thing we saw last week was the ascension, the risen Christ going to the right hand of God, but the spirit has not yet come. And he said, wait wait for the promise of the Father. And so they are sitting together praying. And I think there's a few notes that are worth making here. Number one, the number of the apostles. If you count, there are 11. And we get in very lovely, gory detail what happened to Judas. But it's really significant to note that we are down to 11. And that's significant because the mission of God for Luke cannot move forward until that symbolic 12th is replaced. We recall there were 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, and for the church to move forward, Judas must be replaced. Because remember, part of what Luke is doing is suggesting that this movement, the church, is a restored Israel, that this is the way the promise of God is going to move forward. So we can't have 11 apostles. That's not proper. We have to get to number 12. That's the first detail. The second is just noting that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and a bunch of other women are with them. That might not seem like a big deal, but it's important to note again that even though Jesus was traditional in the sense that he named the 12 apostles as all being male, that Jesus was not a conventional rabbi, that he hung out with women, that women were counted among his followers, that he first appeared to Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of John. And uh, in the same way, Jesus would touch the lepers and, you know, talk to Gentiles and do all these things that rabbis in Jesus's day would never do. And so it's really important for Luke. He uh, emphasizes the role of women in Jesus's ministry. Um, it's important for us every now and again to pause and to say, that was actually pretty radical for the day. It's radical for these women to be part of the early church in the way that they are. And that shows something of this new movement that um, Jesus is inaugurating. And then finally, and this is a great little detail, verse 14, Jesus's brothers are there. Where on earth did they come from? Right? I mean, we're told pretty clearly in the gospels, both John chapter seven, verse 15 and Mark three thirty-one that Jesus's brothers did not support his earthly ministry. Um, they weren't part of it. They were skeptical about it. And then we get this great detail in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, where Paul tells us that Jesus appeared first to James, to his own brother, and then to the rest of the apostles. And we know from history that James ended, ended up being the uh, bishop of Jerusalem. And so again, it's this wonderful little historical note 
um, that scholars, Christian and non-Christian alike, are pretty unanimous in that Jesus's brothers were not really part of his ministry on earth. And historically speaking, we know that James was the bishop of Jerusalem. And from Paul's firsthand account, uh, we're told that Jesus appeared to James first after he rose from the dead. So I think it's just an important little note to say that uh, it's kind of uh, nice, I think, to think of Jesus kind of coming back for his family uh, and his brothers now being part of this movement, whereas they were not part of the movement uh, whenever he was walking around Galilee before his death and resurrection. Now, none of his brothers are eligible, notice, to be the 12th apostle. Um, even James, Bishop of Jerusalem, is not eligible to be the 12th apostle. So uh, I'm going to come back uh, in a moment to uh, verse 15, but notice Peter's criteria. So one of the men who have accompanied us throughout the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up, that's the ascension. One of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. In other words, the criteria for being the 12th apostle, it's actually pretty strict. Um, you had to be there on the day that Jesus was baptized by John in the River Jordan, and you had to stick with us for the last three or so years all the way to the ascension. Well, not many people most likely fit that criteria. In fact, I imagine that between um, Joseph called Barsabbas and Matthias, that there weren't too many others. I mean, how many people could there have been who met this criteria? So I just want to note that even though James ends up being the Bishop of Jerusalem, he's not eligible to be the 12th apostle. He's not eligible to replace Judas because of the criteria. The criteria is you are with us the whole time. So that's interesting to note. Um, going back to verse 15, uh, we have about 120 people who made up the early church. Uh, to put that in perspective, that is about half the number of people who attended worship at St. Michael's on March 8th, um, the last time we met before the coronavirus. And so this movement is really small, and it's going to take a big event for the church to explode. And that, of course, is what's going to be described with the Pentecost. Verse 16, um, with respect to Peter's interpretation of Judas, notice how he says the scripture had to be fulfilled. This is a big, big theme, really for all four of the evangelists, but again, for Matthew and Luke in particular. Matthew has different reasons for always quoting the scriptures, but for Luke, he really wants the pagan government around him to see this new movement as the continuation of God's covenant to Abraham and the people of Israel. Because again, politically speaking, the Romans tolerated ancient religions. They tolerated the Jews, but they had no tolerance at all for new movements who did not take place in the worship of the gods and honoring the emperor. And so really the only way this movement's gonna survive from Luke's perspective is if he can make the case very clearly, if he can offer an orderly account to say, this movement you see happening here, don't worry about it, nothing to be alarmed at. You know those good neighbors you've had for a long time, the Jews who don't cause you too much trouble? This is the way that story's moving forward, so don't be suspicious of anything happening. That's kind of what 
Luke wants to get across to the Roman officials. And um, in some sense, he hopes and prays that they might read this account. So I'm going to go ahead and, and stop there. I've talked enough, and I want to see as you listen to me what questions you have and what comments. So the only thing that I, um, just thinking about it, is that um, I think in the Gospel of Matthew, um, it talks about Judas going back. And this probably isn't just kind of a detail, but it talks about Judas realize, realizing that he made a huge mistake. Yeah. And he takes the money that, that was given him and he throws it at the feet of the, the uh, Sanhedrin or whatever. I can't remember who it was, but whoever paid him off. And so they used that money because it was called blood money. They used it to buy the, the burial ground for paupers. And that's, I'm assuming that's the property that, or the land that they're talking about. The field of blood. Mm-hmm. I assume so as well. I haven't gone deep enough into that verse to cross-reference everything, but I think, I mean, I think that's a fair assumption. Yeah. Not that it's a huge, you know, it makes a difference one way or the other, but it, I just thought about that, that he didn't really own that land. He had never owned that land. He had just given the money back and that, that land was purchased with that money. Yeah. So, Julia, you're a physician. Uh, is it possible, um, how, how would you kind of rate Luke's medical knowledge where he says uh, that he fell headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out? Does that happen from time to time? I mean, I would think it could. I've never seen yeah. it, thankfully. I mean, yeah. if you hit, you know, if you hit a rock, and I mean, it was rocky and in Israel, so I would think if you hit a rock, yeah, you could, you could do some bad damage. I share that, um, you know, because it's really important to say a word about Luke as a historian. So you and I, uh, we are modern people, and we have particular expectations with respect to how history is undertaken. So if you go to a history class, one of the things that you're looking for as a modern Western person is uh, the facts and objectivity, mm -hmm. right? That's kind of how we do history. We want to know who, what, when, where and try to keep as much of our personal bias out of the telling. I think it's important to note that this is not how um, people throughout history uh, understand history, you know, the undertaking of history, uh, and it's not how um, people in the first century understood historical accounts, that they were much more honest about their subjectivity and their, for lack of a better word, agenda in writing history. And although they weren't writing, you know, symbolic treatises, like, you know, um, Luke is clear. He wants to offer an orderly account of what really happened. So Luke is concerned with the facts, but he's also not very ashamed. And, and people wouldn't have been ashamed in his day to say, this is kind of my agenda in writing the history. That was a normal thing. And part of Luke's agenda, for lack of a better word, um, is to... Um, to do two things. Uh, one, I mentioned to the people of Rome to make this new movement credible, but to the church um, to um, almost uh, say, a, to, to speak a theological word about who God is and what this new movement is. And for good or for ill, 
Um, Luke, and to be honest with you, not many of the evangelists have a very positive, grace-filled, reconciliation-oriented account of Judas. Um, We just don't get it in the four Gospels. And a lot of people uh, are deeply bothered by that. I sometimes get a little bothered by it personally. Uh, But I think it's important to note that if you were to talk to Luke, he kind of wants you to have a harsh, this man got what he deserved understanding of Judas. And that's just something, you know, that, that we have to deal with. That's, that's kind of a a tough thing, I think. That he was a bad guy. (laughs) Well, yeah. So I, I am, I mean, I'm offering my own personal perspective here right? So I'm not speaking on behalf of all Christians. Uh, But I think, so what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? Love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. And as part of our Good Friday liturgy in the Episcopal Church um, and Monday, Thursday, when we, we read the Passion Narrative, one of the brilliant things about the Episcopal Church is how we all take on the role of the crowd. So we all scream, crucify him, crucify him. And that is our way of basically saying that it wasn't someone else. It wasn't someone else who betrayed our Lord, that each of us in our own way has taken place in that sin, right? And that's that's a hard thing to understand and, and to, to really grasp. But we kind of liturgically intuit that we're not here to point fingers at someone else being the bad guys, but we all take our place as those who need forgiveness and love. And so, you know, I'm not advocating changing scripture. I'm not advocating not reading these things. I'm not advocating that we make up a theology that says, you know, Judas didn't do a bad thing. But you know, I think if I were to write an account of a gospel, uh, um, and I had any tradition of the Lord appearing to Judas to say, I forgive you. I would certainly want that included. And, um, you know, my hope is that Judas too received grace and mercy, but of course it's just not there in the new Testament. And that's one of the hard things reading it. So I I think, yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, in a way that's sort of a continuation of, uh, Luke acting in a way that we might more identify with the Old Testament so that the whole vision, Christ's vision of forgiveness hasn't really dawned on them yet. I mean, maybe that's part of why he didn't write that. I'm just speculating. I do think that there's some really interesting ideas about how Luke is... um, keeping these this new spiritual group affiliated in the jewish tradition and it's in, it would be interesting to know historically at what point did the jews finally say okay that's it you guys you really are on a different track and realign themselves with rome to save themselves i mean uh, that well, didn't really happen at the crucifixion well, that's, that's a really good question. So I think it's important to know that the early church and kind of Christianity and Judaism was messy and that the Jews were undergoing their own important shift because you had the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD. So you have this temple in 
Jerusalem that the Romans basically destroyed, okay? And uh, that forever changed Judaism because the temple was the center of their cultic life. It's where uh, sacrifices were made. I mean, it was the show. And what happens when the temple, that space where the Holy of Holies exists is destroyed, what happens is that um, Judaism itself started going to a more synagogue-based model. Uh, and um, uh, different interpretations of the Torah or of the law of Moses were offered. And so Judaism underwent its own radical shift, even as Christianity was born. That's an important thing to note. Another important thing to note is that as we read Acts of the Apostles, we see some of the tension with this new church holding both Jews and Gentiles together, okay? But I think you and I lose sight of how crazy and radical this was, especially if you were Jewish. This was crazy. What on earth is going on? What do you mean we're supposed to be one community? Um, and some of them were able to get on board with that, and some of them were not. And so for a while, you did have Christian communities that still understood themselves as Jewish, who followed the full law of Moses, who were still ethnically of the people of Israel, and who believed in the resurrection of the dead and proclaimed Christ as the Messiah. These communities continued into the third and early fourth century, right? No Gentiles. Um, now, they weren't the majority of it, and those aren't the communities we have in the New Testament. And because all of us are Gentiles, uh, unless you converted to Christianity uh, from Judaism, you're a Gentile who's been grafted in. And so uh, we like the scriptures about Jews, Gentiles, you know, Gentiles being fully welcome, but it was kind of a messy birth of Christianity. And uh, even though Luke puts it together in a nice, tidy story. The truth is, Martha, you had all different types of communities um, that were coexisting at one time as uh, together they figured this all out. So the question is, why did the Jews reject Jesus as not being the Messiah? Yeah, so that's not a stupid question, okay? No, no stupid questions. I'm gonna go back to third grade. You know, all questions are good. Um, I think the first, I'm, I'm going to offer, um, I'm going to offer two answers, and these are not the only two answers to this question, okay? Um, the first has to do with history, the second has to do with theology. So let me offer the historical answer. Historically speaking, even though in the scriptures, right, we look in the scriptures and God's covenant with Abraham was always from the very beginning to bless the nations, which is the same word as pagans, right? It's, it's the non-Jews. Uh, even though in Isaiah 49, 6, God says to Isaiah, I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth, right? That's what it says. And I've just cherry-picked those verses, but there's others in the Old Testament. Just because it says that doesn't mean that's what people felt, and that's what was fully believed during that time. And it's hard to underestimate the nostalgia people felt for the kingdom of Israel as it existed under David, when they were in control, when it was a theocracy, when it was in their mind clean and pure, and they could worship God the way they wanted to, and they were not under foreign oppression. 
But for the last 400 years or so, you had all these different armies that ruled over them, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Persians, uh, and now the Romans ruled over them. And they had their myth that the Messiah's job was to get rid of Rome. That's what the Messiah would do. The problem is Rome. And what they lost sight of was that, no, 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 the problem isn't Rome. The problem is alienation from God. Right, so they didn't, they didn't have an understanding of what the Messiah would do. And even if they did, they didn't think the way the Messiah would do that would be by dying the most humiliating death on a cross. I mean, Paul quotes Deuteronomy, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, right? And so this idea of Jesus or the Messiah fixing the curse by taking on the curse that is a theological uh, and, on God's part, a great surprise. And even though Jesus uh, told his disciples three times, this is the way it's going to work, um, everyone had a hard time getting on board with that. So, so that's a little bit of the history. It was, it was a big surprise, um, even though it's in the scriptures. And then theologically, what I'd say, and this is Luke's understanding, and uh, I'm empathetic with it. I mean, this is, this is going to be, I think, also Orthodox Christian theology, would be that, you know, um, the Greek word is day, D-E-I, it was necessary. Luke always says it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. This was not an oops. It was not an accident. Uh, it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. Uh, in order for the mystery of the cross and resurrection to take place. And so uh, theologically speaking, from God's point of view, when we think of the crucifixion, when we think of the rejection of Jesus, there is no accident, there is no oops, there is no plan B, that this was always the way that God was going to solve the problem of sin, evil, and death. And so that's this other puzzling theological conundrum for us. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one of them heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Okay, so a few notes. One is this takes place on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost has come. And 
Um, Pentecost is the old Greek and Latin name for the Jewish harvest festival or the festival of weeks. Uh, you can read about it in Exodus 34 or Deuteronomy 16, but it also commemorates um, the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai 50 days after the Exodus. And so people are all gathered for this big, big Jewish festival. They're together in one place. And then you have the sound of the rush of a violent wind. And so when you have wind and fire, wind and fire, even in the Old Testament, these are signs of God's presence. And so everything about what Luke is writing says God is here. God is showing up. And notice, it is the rush of a violent wind. Um, this is not the sweet heavenly dove that we see appearing at Jesus's baptism. Uh, but something violent, something powerful, and uh, it gives us a different manifestation of the spirit. The tongue is like fire, and we can talk about the many things fire can do. Fire burns, fire destroys, fire purifies, uh, fire warms, and of course the Holy Spirit will do all of those things. And finally, um, the disciples receive that for which they have been waiting and the power it gives them is to speak in other languages. In fact, uh, whether or not, uh, it doesn't really matter where you're from. Uh, if you're a Parthian, you hear that language. If you're an Elamite, you hear in that language that as they speak about God's deeds of power, everyone can understand. And I think it's important to note that this is a reversal of the story of Babel in the book of Genesis. You might recall that story. I think it's in Genesis chapter 10 or, or, or basically around there that uh, due to human arrogance, um, after the people build this tower to the heavens, they say, let us make a name for ourselves. And as they build this tower to the heavens, God basically says, I don't like this arrogance. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and knock this tower down. And the people were dispersed. And not only that, but um, their languages were confused and they couldn't understand each other. It was all Babel. That's why it's called the Tower of Babel. But here, notice God does the opposite, right? So in the book of Genesis, you have God scattering, you have God confusing, you have people separating. And that really is the story of life in a fallen world. But here, um, God is restoring. And the sign of that is that everyone hears the gospel in his or her own language. Um, and I think that there's kind of a modern day equivalent to that that we can talk about it. Um, because even though uh, most people in the United States of America speak English, um, we can kind of imagine what the different tribes of the world are and how we all have a different language. People of different generations, right? Millennials and boomers. Sometimes they both speak English, but they find themselves speaking a different language, unable to communicate. Husband and wife often struggle to speak the same language. Um, and part of the Holy Spirit's work is to enable us to share a common language. Um, I think it's also important to note that you have all these different races and tribes coming together. Um, this is a big theme in the Gospel of Luke. Again, this is not just going to be a Jewish movement. It's going to be a Gentile movement as well. And it's going to be people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. In fact, in the Nicene Creed, we talked about one holy Catholic apostolic church. 
And that word Catholic means universal. And that universality originally referred to ethnicity, to tribes, to different races, different people groups, that this is no longer a tribal movement. It's not just the people of Israel, that people of every race, every skin color, every tribe are going to be part of this church. And that is also part of the Holy Spirit's work. Um, and so uh, I'm going to kind of kick it over to you for some conversation here in a bit. But the, the whole idea of Pentecost is that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given to a few right? Moses had the spirit of God at times. There's a great story in the book of Numbers where the spirit falls upon 70 of the elders for a season, but then the spirit leaves them. The spirit is not a new character. What is different is that now the Holy Spirit will be available and poured out upon all, and it's going to be the lifeblood of this new movement, that the thing that's going to carry this movement forward is not going to be our power, it's not going to be our cleverness. It's not going to be our resources, but it's going to be this dynamic, fiery force, this divine force um, that must animate the church if the mission of the church is to move forward. You know? Yeah. So Donna, just to kind of, kind of summarize your comment, it's just uh, an observation that, you know, we talk about the father, we talk about the son, but the Holy Spirit just seems a little bit more mysterious and we don't mm -hmm. talk to the spirit as much or, and, and preach on the spirit and emphasize the spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and maybe, yeah, go ahead. Maybe it's just part of the, the human part of us that, you know, the scripture is concrete and the yeah. stories of Jesus are concrete from what we have, of course. Well, um, but, but the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I, I think that's really, I think that's really insightful. So just a few thoughts. Number one is with respect to the father and son, with respect to the father, we all have some experience of father. And so whether or not that experience is useful in understanding God, the father doesn't matter. We project our experience onto this concept of God as father. And we, you know, relate through that experience. We, we get the Father. We mm -hmm. understand the Father, uh, or at least we feel like we do. With Jesus, we might not necessarily understand the incarnate Word of God, right, the theological concept, but we do get Jesus. We get his compassion. We get his love. We get his friendship. So Jesus is easy to access. But I think you're right. The Spirit is, by definition, mysterious, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have I mean, I actually prefer, to be honest with you, I prefer the older translation, the Holy Ghost. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's a ghost, you know, not a ghost in the sense of the way we think about it, but, but ghosts speak to mystery. You can't quite put your arms around a ghost. Mm -hmm. um, it it uh, is wild, right? It's a dove one moment, it's fire the next moment. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that animates us from within and yet comes from without. And even though the Holy Spirit in our creed uh, is a person, you know, they're all a person of the Trinity, mm -hmm. um, we don't have any experience in our life of a Holy Spirit. And therefore, uh, we're just a little baffled by what to do with it. Um, I think another thing that makes us nervous about the Holy Spirit is it's a little bit more easy to co-opt and use for our own purposes. So 
you know, like if I set up, you know, some crazy ministry that um, has no support in our tradition and has no support in scripture and you challenge me on it and I say, well, listen, Donna, I've got the Holy <laughs> Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit's doing something new here. You're kind of <laughs> stuck. I mean, you might yeah. not believe the Holy Spirit is doing something and you might kind of get everyone together to get me removed from my job. But at the end of the day, it's really hard to argue with someone who believes that the Holy Spirit has told him or her to do something. Mm-hmm. And people throughout history have noticed this. That's why people who are spirit-driven, who claim the authority of the spirit over and above scripture uh, or tradition, are always looked at with a little bit more uh, scrutiny, and mm-hmm. rightly so. And so the spirit asks us to live in this tension whereby on the one hand, we have to be open to something new. The spirit is always doing something new. On the other hand, um, if the spirit asks us to do something so new that we radically break with what Jesus himself said or with what the tradition teaches or the spirit of the tradition, then we've probably gone a little bit too far. And so knowing the spirit uh, requires somewhat of an intuitive uh, willingness to be open to mystery uh, while also being rooted in your tradition. Mm-hmm. Martha? So, um, I, I offer, I, I love your definitions there and I learned a lot from it. I also think that historically, um, the idea of a material world, <laughs> I love Madonna for many reasons. And one was that she sang about that material world because it so represents what our Western civilization and culture, society's norms are based on. And I, I, I think that the, a lot of that traces back to when the Romans were in charge. And, and I also think that the church was pretty complicit in writing uh, doctrines and creeds that uh, focused on what is material. And, and there was that sad integration of Christianity and economics and politics and, and this sort of giant institutionalized idea of what Christianity is and what individuals roles are in that institutionalized church as opposed to other forms of Christian faith like the Celtic tradition which saw the spirit everywhere and started from that point and we could think of other religious practices that start in the spirit not in the more material based world so I think it's as yeah. as much a cultural, societal, and historical context that leads us not to identify with the Holy Spirit, to question it, and to find a lot of validity when we see some some fact, some some real event happen. Um, yeah. So I I think that that also enters into this problem. Yeah, I think those are really insightful comments. And and the only thing I can really say uh, is uh, what it, it raises for me is that there is no being a Christian without a willingness to understand a, a tension that you have to live in and that it's always possible to lean too far to one side. And so, for instance, you know, you can lean so far on tradition, so far on the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says that you become rigid and you forget that God is alive, 
that God is always present in history, which is evolving and changing. And so though God doesn't change, God's response to us changes because life is unfolding, right? Um, so we can forget that. On the other hand, if we get so uh, spirit, 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 you know, uh, materiality bad, all this stuff, we forget that the centrality of our faith is God actually taking on material form, right? It's one of the things that makes Christianity wonderfully unique of like, oh my God, the invisible spirit, God, took on a body, you know? So, so it's kind of this interesting thing where um, the best we can do is, I think, know the tensions that we need to live in and then also be self-aware enough to know our preferences and to say, it's okay that we have preferences and leanings, but I got to watch if I lean too far in one direction. Let's share screen. All right. Oh, I take this back. We did do the casting of lots, didn't we? Well, I'll, let me just say a word or two about um, um, uh, Justice and Matthias. And I think that I mentioned this earlier. But with the casting of lots, um, the reason that um, Luke emphasizes this, you might recall from the Old Testament how one of the ways that the high priests would often discern in difficult decisions, they had the stones Urim and Thummim. These were kind of like a black stone and a white stone or something similar. And it really, to be honest with you, not to, to be crude about this, it wasn't too different from the Magic 8 Ball. Uh, and this is how the high priests would often, or, or, or the people of Israel would make very difficult decisions when they needed to know the Lord's will. The reason they do this in order to choose the 12th apostle, it's Luke's way of emphasizing they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. And so this kind of silly idea of let's say a prayer and draw straws to see what the Lord's will is, um, Part of what's being emphasized is that this is not how the church is to discern moving forward. This is how they had to discern pre-Holy Spirit. And so you kind of have two things going on. One is you have the end of an error, right? Part of what Luke is recounting is this is the last time God's people will discern God's will in this way, this way that goes all the way back to the Pentateuch, this idea of casting lots. Um, Luke is trying to emphasize this practice is now over. And so we will never cast lots in order to discern God's will at St. Michael's. It's not appropriate anymore. And so the idea of the Pentecost is also now that all people have, all Christians um, have, or anyone with the Holy Spirit has the capacity to discern God's will. And that gets into some tricky waters, right? How do we know what God's will is? How do we know the right thing to do? How do we know the right decision to make? Um, Luke would say, you need the Holy Spirit to do that work. And I'll turn it over to you uh, with respect to how you'd answer that question. How is it that Christians do discernment uh, in the 21st century? And how is it appropriate to rely on the Holy Spirit to make decisions? I'm curious what you think about that. That's a really tough question, John. <laughs> I think we've all had experiences where we felt um, either that, that, you know, there was an opportunity, what we call an open door, or we may have had a dream and 
you know, a dream in the sense of I want to do this or I'm looking forward to doing this in my life and, um, and then doors shut. Um, and it was pretty obvious what the will of God was in that, in that sense. Um, in my own life, um, you know, they have something that's, that's called the match. When, after you finish your medical school, you, you put numbers in, you know, of where you want to go to do your residency. And, um, and I, you know, I participated in that and I thought, you know, I, I'm a good student. I have good recommendations. I should be able to get in to a place that I really want to. And it didn't happen like that. That to me was a pretty obvious, you know, this door is shut kind of mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. And it was pretty devastating at first. You know, I was just like, well, God, what's, what's going on? You know, I thought this was where I was supposed to go. And, um, and then God provided the answer, you know, I mean, two days later, the chairman of the pediatric department in it, where I was in medical school said, look, there's one opening in Galveston at their program. Um, I've already called the chairman. I've talked to him. I think you need to go do an interview. Yeah. And it was like, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> and, and so it was pretty clear, but you know, I really, there was those couple of days of where are we going, God? You know, I thought this was a slam dunk and it wasn't. So anyway, that's, that's in my life, how things have happened intermittently that doors opened and doors shut. Um, and then right. contrast that to, um, you know, wanting to buy this house in Bend. Mm -hmm. And really feeling called to to do that to keep me healthy, uh, trusting God to provide whatever place came up, and and He did, and we ended up here, and we're blessed by the doctors, the you know the the church where I've been going, and um, so you just never you know you just I think it occurs in different ways for different yeah. seasons. I really appreciate that witness. And that, that is uh, two things I get from what you said. Um, there's lots of ways that the spirit leads, but one is there's a practical element. It's, you know, spirit's probably not leading you through a closed door. You know, if you have to like break down a wall through your own willpower and you make everyone mad doing it, unless, you know, I mean, that, that's not usually the way it happens, right? Sometimes doors open and you walk through them. Uh, but the other that I heard you say is that it's often easier to see the spirit's guidance and work uh, in the rearview mirror than it is mm -hmm. during the time. And that doesn't mean that we don't seek God's wisdom in the time, but things are often a lot clearer when we look back. Um, I've experienced it in, um, sometimes uh, an urge. Um, you know, as Julie mentioned, as you know, a thought or a dream as I'm waking up, and, you know, often it's a thought that I didn't want to have. I didn't want that thought. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet it's just clear. You know, it's like I can't stuff it back in. I can't make it go away. Um, it's, not, it's not going anywhere. Um, and um, I 
Yeah. But yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's sometimes been uh, pretty powerful um, experiences where, you know, I would be in a situation and I would feel uh, much more powerful, really empowered in a way that was not my own. That I didn't know where that voice was coming from, but it sure wasn't mine. Yeah. Um, and after and after the fact, you know, again, as you as you said, it's like I thought, oh, okay, <clears throat> I think that's what this is what was going on. Yeah, that's great. I love that, and that's you know the 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 spirit comes and and speaks words. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes um, uh, um, people sometimes report hearing audible voices, but but a lot of times it's an internal word, and. Uh, people often ask, well, what's the difference? You know, what's the difference between the Holy Spirit and my own thinking process? And I certainly can't tell you, I'm not inside your, your head, but, um, but in my experience, uh, when the Spirit speaks, it's like you said, Barbara, like you, you just can't, like you're, you're just nagging, you can't get rid of it. But, but a lot of times when the Spirit speaks, the Holy Spirit does not justify himself. Whereas in my mental process, I'm, I'm arguing pros and cons this way, that. That's my own kind of mental noise. But when the spirit speaks, it's just a, it's a clarity. And mm-hmm. you either obey or you don't. And there's consequences for both. Yeah. Um, but I think also, you know, we've talked about open doors, closed doors. We've talked about voices, kind of internal. There's the Bible. There's community. Um, Someone mentioned dreams, um, you know, the dream that you have uh, of what you want. There's also dreams. I I actually uh, experience and believe that God speaks to us through dreams. Um, And there's, you know, all all different types of way I think the Spirit speaks. But the question is, you know, it's not a formula. That's what makes the Holy Spirit the Spirit, the freedom. So how does that work in your own life? And that's just maybe something to pay attention to as you undertake this, um, this study on acts because there's three main characters in the book. There's uh, Peter, there's Paul, there's the Holy spirit. So we're going to have to deal with this spirit. Uh, if we're going to deal with acts of the apostles.